Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to uh, tonight's uh, panel uh, discussion. My name is uh, Kevin Featherstone. I'm a professor here at the LSE in the European Institute, and I'm going to be chairing the discussion uh, this evening. <laughs> of course, when we originally planned uh, this event... <laughs> We were living in a different world, in a different time zone, uh, etc. We thought we would be talking about uh, Brexit, your trick-or-treat, as it were. Uh, well, there's still so much uh, to discuss. Tonight's uh, discussion is part of a programme, the LSE programme on Brexit, which is hosted by the School of Public Policy here at the LSE and the European Institute at the LSE as well. And we've had a series of lectures, panel discussions, seminars, etc., over the last uh, three and a half uh, years. And who would um, suggest that we call a halt to these discussions? Because, like any good drama in, that they might wish to attend in the West End, this seems set to run and run. And of course, academics will have so much to discuss uh, in terms of um, the ways uh, forward, uh, etc. Well, this evening we have a panel of um, experts to guide us. And indeed, the experts are uh, well able to uh, give us their authoritative uh, view. I'm going to invite them to speak initially for about eight to ten minutes. Uh, privately, before we came in the theatre, they each agreed to do that. So you can be my disciplinary uh, instruments uh, for this evening if they go uh, to anything outrageous like 11 minutes uh, over time. Uh, so we'll have a, uh, a number of presentations to guide us. And then we'll open up to questions and answers uh, from you. Uh, as is often the case with LSE events, there is a Twitter hashtag, which I think is behind me. Yes, hashtag LSE Brexit. Uh, very predictable. Uh, but we would be delighted to uh, see your uh, comments as we uh, proceed. We've agreed a, a sequence of presentations uh, this evening. So first we're going to invite uh, Catherine Bernard to uh, open up. Catherine is Professor of European Union and Labour Law at Trinity College, uh, Cambridge. She will be followed by Sir Ivan Rogers, who is the permanent representative, the UK ambassador to Brussels uh, between 2013 and 2017. Ivan will be followed by Vicky Price, formerly the joint head of the government's economic service in Whitehall. And then we'll finish with the political uh, implications uh, with Tony Travers, professor here in the School of Public Policy. So without further ado, can you please welcome our panel? Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be here. I am effectively the legal warm-up act to the insights that you really want to hear from those who know what they're talking about. So I am going to talk a bit about things from the legal perspective. And I'm going to start with timetable. Now, this is a hostage to fortune because, as we know from the very event this evening, timetables slip. 
But what I want you to see is um, that for all the talk about getting Brexit done, I'm afraid it's not going to happen quickly. And the reason is as follows. So we know the withdrawal agreement has been concluded. That's the Article 50 text. And um, it's mainly Theresa May's deal. But uh, Boris Johnson's changes related to the Northern Ireland backstop, which is no longer a backstop, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, but his changes have been bolted onto what Theresa May had negotiated. And Article, the Article 50 divorce text, the withdrawal agreement, is accompanied by a political declaration, which is mainly not legally binding, which is in, intended as an indicator as to what the future might look like. Now, remember, the divorce text, the withdrawal agreement, needs to have certain things done to it, namely... It's got to be incorporated into UK law through the WAB, the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill. I'll return to that in a moment. But it's also got to be approved by the European Parliament, which may or may not be so straightforward. The Parliament, this Parliament, since 20, the elections in May 2019, somewhat less compliant than its predecessor, it's also got to be agreed by the Council of Ministers. That will probably be more straightforward. Now, let's imagine magic happens and we do leave the EU on the 31st of um, January. Now, assuming we leave and the WAB has been passed and has been converted into domestic law, so it will become an act, then what should happen next is we go into a period of transition. Now, Unfortunately, the British government still insists on calling this an implementation period. It's an extremely unfortunate misnomer because, in fact, we are not implementing anything. Quite the contrary. We are maintaining the status quo minus. In other words, we will not be participating in the EU institutions, but... On a day-to-day -day basis, everything will feel the same because the substantive law will carry on applying as is at the moment. Now, the transition period, according to Boris Johnson, will only last until December 2020, in other words, um, 11 months after we leave. And at the end of the transition period, um, we should have negotiated the New Deal, the Future Economic Relationship. Now, nobody, but nobody believes that it is possible to do a comprehensive trade deal in less than 11 months. And there are other reasons why it's going to be very difficult to get that through, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And so that means that the transition period will probably have to be extended unless we delay a no-deal Brexit. So one possibility is to still have a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of January if the WAB, the Withdrawal Implementation Bill, doesn't pass through Parliament. Or if it does pass through Parliament, we go into transition. At the end of the transition period, in December 2020, we may well be also looking at another no-deal Brexit if there is no future deal concluded. So it is possible to extend the transition period, but we can only extend it once, and we can extend it by one or two years. But we have got to ask by the 1st of July 2020. So within three or four months of us having left, we will be asking for an extension of the transition period. And furthermore, if you look at the text of the WAB, 
Parliament um, will be able to vote on a motion about whether to extend the transition period, but Parliament itself won't be able to request <coughs> an extension in a way that you saw with the Benn Act, unless there is some future Hillary Benn who tries to take back control of the order book. Long and the short of it is that actually the transition of one year is way too short, and it may well be that if the government decides, as Boris Johnson has said, that we will not go beyond... 31st of December 2020, there will be a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of December 2020 unless there is an extension of the transition period. If at the end of 2020 we leave without a deal, it will be a no-deal Brexit, the Northern Ireland provisions of the withdrawal agreement will in fact kick in because the Northern Ireland provisions are there and they are there to govern all future relationships. So that's a timetable, and it is what lawyers might describe as ambitious. Um, <laughs> and it is deeply problematic because of this very short window. Now, I want to say a little bit about the WAB. Now, in fact, there are two pieces of legislation which are really important in the UK. There's the EU Withdrawal Act 2018, which was the act that took the best part of 11 months to go through Parliament in um, 2018. Much consultation, much discussion. And that act, and what it did, was essentially three things. To repeal the European Communities Act, that was the act that took us in. To convert the whole corpus of EU legislation into domestic law. And then to introduce some what are called Henry the eighth powers and these are powers to give the executive the possibility to amend um, the law to make sure it works on exit day. Now that's a very important piece of legislation, probably even more important is the WAB which I have referred to a number of times and the WAB is the piece of legislation which has got to go through Parliament to give effect to the divorce text, the Article 50 text, into domestic law. Now, it's a really difficult document to read. It's 110 pages long. And the reason why it's so complicated is because it's largely an amendment statute. For any of you who are lawyers, you know that amendment statutes are some of the most difficult to read because it's overlaid onto the 2018 Act and also a bunch of other statutes, so it's quite difficult to work out what all the changes are and what they might be. That's why, from a legal perspective, it was shocking that the WAB was only going to be given three days to go through Parliament because it is such um, an important piece of legislation and also a very difficult one. What does it do? I won't go into every um, area, but I just thought you might like to have um, an overview of what the WAB does. First of all, it introduces the implementation period, better known as the transition period. That's the period, you'll remember, we will go into, assuming we leave with a deal. And it makes provision for the transition period, and it turns, effectively turns back on a number of the provisions of the European Communities Act that took us into the EU, which had been turned off by the 2018 Act, but need to be turned back on because we're going back essentially as a quasi-member state. It also contains provisions to say that the withdrawal agreement is itself directly effective. In other words, it will have direct effect enforceability in the UK courts and it will benefit from the supremacy of the withdrawal agreement. So if there's a conflict between the withdrawal agreement and national law, the withdrawal agreement will, um, uh, will 
Trump will win. And it's really quite remarkable. A lot of us thought this provision would cause considerable anxiety amongst the ERG, the European Research Group, but in fact they seem to have swallowed it reasonably happily because there was no objections made to it. It has been put into the WAB too. Third section is on citizens' rights, really important part of the withdrawal agreement. Those are the rights of EU nationals in the UK. The most striking thing about that bit of the bill is the sheer breadth of the Henry VIII powers. The entire area is not given as rights, but it's given as powers to the executive to implement those rights through secondary legislation. Huge swathes of Henry VIII clauses, huge swathes of clauses which give lots of power to the executive. There are various other things that are worth um, having a look at, including a nod in the direction of workers' rights, nod being the operative word. Mm. There is no, no, no clause in the Act which says non-regression. And that, despite what Boris Johnson said in Parliament last week, the, there is no clause in the legislation to stop regression, i.e. going below the EU standards. Very briefly on the future, and then I'll stop. So, so far, all that we have talked about is about the divorce. We have not talked about the future. And, of course, as you saw from my timeline, the future trade negotiations are going to be complex, time-consuming, not least because we are not clear what we want out of those trade negotiations. We've been told by people like Liz Truss that we're going for a best-in-class trade deal. But in fact, when you look at what the political declaration says, remember the political declaration is the non-legally binding document that um, gives a hint about the direction of travel. What we're going for is some sort of Canada-style free trade agreement and possibly even less um, uh, advantageous than the Canada-style free trade agreement. Michel Barnier had already recognised this in 2017, or even late 2016, when he produced this slide. It's his slide, um, sometimes referred to as the staircase, depending whether you're a lever or a remainer, of benefits or of doom. But the bottom line is, because of all of the things, all of the UK's red lines... Essentially, it rules out other types of relationships like staying in the single market through membership of the European Economic Area, also known as doing in Norway. It rules out some sort of relationship like the Swiss have got or the Turkish Customs Union. And we're down in the bottom with Canada and Korea. Nothing wrong with those countries, but of course they are 6,000 miles away from the EU. We are 26 miles away from the EU. It's going to be difficult to negotiate the trade agreement. Why? Because the trade agreement is going to be, apparently, it's going to be broad, it's going to be comprehensive. Um, it's going to cover not just goods and services, but also internal and external security. EU will want a trade deal with us in respect of goods because they have a trade surplus with us in respect of goods. But in respect of services, where we have a significant trade surplus with the EU, the negotiations will start from the very low um, standards set by the WTO agreement on GATS. 
the closer we are to the EU, the more the EU will demand in terms of so-called level playing field commitments. And by level playing field commitments, I mean um, that uh, we have to respect EU workers' rights, consumer rights, state aid rules, and the like. So the further we go, the more Canada-like we are, the fewer level playing field commitments that will be required. My final point is process. Not exciting, but as we know, we've been preoccupied with process for a long period of time. Article 50 is, is the legal provision that has determined the negotiations over the divorce. And relatively speaking, Article 50 is a relatively benign legal regime. Why is it benign? Because all that it requires is qualified majority voting by the member states in council and consultation and consent by the European Parliament. Once we have left, and that will be the day that we go into transition, once we have left, entirely new set of legal provisions apply. Articles, probably Article 207 or more likely 217 plus 218. Those numbers will become as familiar to you as Article 50 does now. It's likely that the future trade deal will be a mixed agreement, and what that means is it's got to be agreed unanimously by the EU, not just by qualified majority voting, and also it will need to be ratified by all of the national and regional parliaments, including the five regional parliaments in Belgium, including Wallonie, which has tried to block the Canadian CETA. And remember, all of these parliaments have their own politics. And they may well use this as an opportunity to get leverage on other issues. Just think about Spain and what it might be wanting to get leverage over. Think about the Czech Republic. That might be, there might be some dispute, I don't know, about the local sewerage system, but it's a way of getting what they want by trying to block the UK deal. It's going to be messy. Yes, you can have provisional application of some of these agreements, but they have got to go through this process. It's going to be lengthy. Anyone who thinks this can be done quickly, I'm afraid, has not understood the law. Thank you very much indeed. Ivan, thank you. Well, uh, thanks very much for inviting me, and good evening. Um, Catherine's basically said it all, so I'm not quite sure what I, can, what I can add to that sort of excellent account of the legal position with uh, a mixture of sort of political elements. I think the first thing I would say uh, is there are two things we shouldn't be at all surprised about. Firstly, as Catherine uh, is suggesting, the difficulty, complexity, and longevity of this process. Obviously, um, I became briefly notorious for saying that at the time I resigned, and I was saying it inside government before I resigned. It seemed to me a statement of the completely bleeding obvious, really, um, and I think it still is. Uh, but it's quite understandable for politicians who haven't dealt with trade policy and trade negotiations and this kind of stuff before to underestimate the length and difficulty of this process. It is a process of deintegration. I call it deintegration, not disintegration, deliberately so that it isn't pejorative. It's a deintegration process. It's a deaccession process in a sort of Brussels jargon. It's the reverse of an accession process. When you're joining the European Union, you're converging on an already existing law book across about 35 different chapters of uh, economy and society. 
but the law book already exists and you know what you're converging to and it's only once you've converged and demonstrated your ability to meet the acquis communautaire, the community law book, that you can join. Deaccession is in some ways more complex because you've got to do it across those 35 uh, fields, but you've got obviously got to specify where you want to go, which we've been struggling with uh, unavailingly in the political classes for about the last three and a half years, and we still haven't really got agreement across our system, even sometimes within the government, although there's now clearly more unity in the Conservative Party as to where we want to go. But then you've got to be able to negotiate it with the other side. And as Catherine alluded to, there are clear implications in terms of there's a massive trade-off between sovereignty, autonomy and control and the degree of market access for your goods and services in what used to be your home market and is much your biggest market, both for goods and for services, and massively your biggest market for services. So that's the kind of trade-off we're dealing with. Therefore, we should be very unsurprised that this is a very lengthy process. Uh, I never said exactly what I was accused of having said, namely that it would take a decade to get to the other side of it. But I did say um, clearly in 2016, none of the trade and economic negotiation would start during the Article 50 process. It couldn't. It's legally not permissible. Ministers at all levels really didn't want to hear that, of course, in the autumn of 2016, but it was only the truth. And then the process of negotiating a free trade deal plus the ancillary elements that uh, Catherine's alluded to, is you know, going to be long and difficult, complex and conflictual. And on that point, I think it's very important to understand that what ministers say frequently, which is we want a quick and dirty, bare-bones FTA of a Canada sort, and therefore it must be easy with us because we're aligned with the European Union on day one because we used to be in the European Union, is almost completely the reverse of the truth. Because if you want a thin free trade agreement, by definition you want something radically different from the status quo. You want more divergence. Why do you want a thin FTA? Because you want more autonomy and freedom and more sovereignty to go your own way and to diverge deliberately from the regimes you used to take part in. That actually makes it more difficult rather than less difficult to negotiate with the European Union. A thicker free trade deal is, curiously enough, easier to negotiate with the EU than a thinner one. And as Catherine rightly said, what Boris Johnson's biggest change, other than the backstop being turned into a front stop, which is really what's happened on the Northern Ireland issue, the biggest change is that the destination is more distant, more mid-Atlantic, potentially, I assume, therefore, more deregulatory. Why do you want to diverge more? Because you want to deliberately do things differently across the economy <laughs> from the way you did when you were in the European Union. That is going to be, because of the level playing field issues Catherine alluded to, more difficult to negotiate, not less. doesn't mean to say it can't be done, uh, but it is a matter of years, not months. And if you ever get to a bare-bones FTA, it raises the question that Catherine alluded to of mixity in the jargon of Brussels. In other words, uh, is it a mixed competence issue and does it require ratification in all member states? There are things that you can do which commission competence only and therefore are quicker in ratification processes, but then there'll be a hell of a lot missing that this country will want from a free trade deal. So we should be very unsurprised that this is complex, contorted, difficult. The other thing I think we should be unsurprised by, but I'll leave it to Tony to talk about then the politics of it, is that we're heading for a general election again, second general election since the referendum. I have a nasty feeling that the second generation, second uh, election after the um, referendum will not shed a great deal more light on the destination than the first election after the referendum, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if there are more general elections 
at some stage during this process. Obviously, it depends on the decisiveness or otherwise of the result we get now, and maybe there'll be a, a, you know, a commanding overall Tory majority, and maybe we will therefore go for a more mid-Atlantic destination. But it's not surprising we've ended up here because, frankly, we've been heading for a general election ever since Theresa May's checkers deal uh, prompted the resignation of Boris Johnson and David Davis in July 2018. That led to the events which prompted her to try and get an all-UK backstop in place of the Northern Ireland-specific backstop, and she said to European leaders, if you give me an all-UK backstop and stick it in the withdrawal agreement, that will enable me to get it through in the so-called meaningful vote in the House of Commons. With all respect, and this is not intended to be sort of uh, pejorative either, that was never true. She never had the votes to get it through, and turning a Northern Ireland backstop into an all-UK backstop was more inflammatory, of course, for the right of the Conservative Party because from their point of view, from the European Research Group and others' point of view, but also from David Davis and Boris Johnson's point of view, that condemned us to too close alignment and proximity to the European Union, and that's exactly what they don't want in Brexit. So the politics of this for Johnson and Davis is they want more distance, more divergence, more mid-Atlantic future, and therefore they were determined to bring down Theresa May's deal and block it in the House of Commons, and frankly determined to bring her down. And although the first assassination attempt uh, failed last December, the reality was that she had 117 members of her own parliamentary party against her, and those were exactly the same 117 people who subsequently voted against her in the first meaningful vote. She chipped, she chipped away at that uh, moderately successfully, but nowhere near successfully enough in meaningful votes two and three, but really from certainly last Christmas, and I would argue from July 2018, we've been on the track to her demise as Prime Minister and her replacement by somebody who is more of a true believer in Brexit, and that inevitably pointed to Boris Johnson. That, so that's why we are where we are. The politics, as I say, I will leave to Tony to go. I mean, the political strategy from the government side is fairly obvious, and it's been very obvious since uh, Johnson first emerged in office, his first day in office, and frankly, from the appointment of Dominic Cummings as his chief of staff, because uh, Cummings actually worked for Michael Gove uh, for many years inside government, he, but he ran the Vote Leave campaign. You know, this guy has been brought into number 10 with a view to having a general election before Christmas and to winning a general election and winning an overall majority and getting out of the paralysis in the House of Commons by changing the composition of the House of Commons. So it's been blindingly obvious again, really, since uh, Johnson won the leadership uh, election that we were heading for a general election because from the Conservative point of view, the political strategy is try and reunify the right, reunify the Leave side of British politics, chip away at the Brexit party's vote, whether that's through conflictual approach or by giving them various incentives to align with the Conservatives and now recognise it's the only way to get Brexit of any sort across the line. And, you know, what's the optimal strategy if you're sitting inside government at the moment and in the Conservative Party? You want to keep the Remain vote divided between a Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn, and they're quite keen to fight an election while Corbyn is still there. Um, uh, and a Lib Dem party perhaps a bit resurgent under Joe Swinson. So if you can keep the Remain side divided, but you can get 35 to 40% of the vote for the Conservative Party, then you're very likely to win an overall majority, and some of them think they'll win a thumping overall majority. I won't comment on that because there's no point in my speculating on that. On the European side, where do we go? And let me predicate, obviously it hugely depends, it entirely depends on who wins the election and uh, you know, whether there's a clear winner of what the mandate is probably worth spending a little bit more time on Johnson winning an overall majority. We are then heading for an attempt at a thin FTA. 
let's be honest in response to what Catherine put on one of her slides. Will he apply for an extension by July the 1st, 2020? I would be amazed if he did so. I think he will say, um, under no circumstances am I going to extend beyond December the 31st, 2020. I'm going to release this country from its vassalage and bondage uh, to the European Union. It's utterly unacceptable that we remain in transition without a voice and without a vote in either the Council or the European Parliament. I shall not extend. Do, do or die, die in a ditch, FTA or no FTA, we shall be leaving definitively and recapturing our sovereignty from the 1st of January 2021. You can write the script. It will be said in the general election campaign. <laughs> it will be said in the general election campaign. He will say it, and he will commit, in my view, during the general election campaign to not extending. Now, what's the Brussels reaction to that, particularly after the events of the last few weeks? What do you think the Brussels or Berlin or Paris response to the events of the last few weeks? They will read what has actually happened over the last few weeks as quite interesting. To a degree, and we should be honest about this, they are more positive about working with Johnson than they were with working with May because they think he has more authority to get things through and, and more capacity to change direction and pivot. So the very fact that he went from a backstop to a front stop so rapidly and junked all the ideas that he'd been spouting and many others behind him had been spouting about alternative arrangements and technological solutions and administrative solutions to the border, all of which has been talked about for two or three years on the right of the Conservative Party, all of which went out of the window in the space of 24 hours when Johnson spotted the opportunity to do the front-stop deal and essentially to throw the Democratic Unionists under the bus. And, of course, they're livid about having been thrown under the bus. So, but if you're in Brussels or Berlin or Paris, you interpret that as an indication that this guy has more political uh, leverage, more ability to get things through the House of Commons, he's just demonstrated it, more popularity inside the party and therefore more authority, and therefore you might be able to get deals through with Johnson that you couldn't have got with Theresa May. So their expectation as they move into autumn 2020, my final point would be, I think there's an inevitable no-deal crisis in coming this time next year. So please don't think this issue has gone away. As Catherine's alluded to, there will be a no-deal crisis in the autumn of 2020. Um, uh, we will threaten to go no-deal again uh, and say it's intolerable to remain in our vassalage state and we're not having this and we need our quick and dirty bare-bones FTA. The EU will respond to that in broadly the way it's responded uh, all the way through the Article 50 process by saying, actually, the UK won't walk away, won't have the courage to do it, knows the economic downside of doing it is too great, and they will therefore think that in the end game, the UK will make lots of concessions on the substance in order to find some quick and dirty deal, which is a prelude then to subsequent deals in 2021-22. So that's the way I see the dynamics of this. I think it will be a very, very difficult autumn in 2020, not least because by that time we are a third country, so we're in a very different state in dealing with the European Union and we're not at the table at all. And frankly, the European Union's attention will be elsewhere. It's a German presidency, Angela Merkel's last presidency, and it will be dominated by the budget round, which is an extraordinarily difficult budget round to conclude, not least because the British net contribution has gone away. And some of you will have read that uh, the German net contribution may double in size over the next seven years, so they are massively uh, worse hit by British exit in economic and financial terms than anybody else. But budget negotiations, of which I've done too many in my life, are enormously difficult, and that will be the main and controversial issue in the European Union in the autumn of 2020. So the bandwidth and the attention span 
the dealing with the British question, the British FTA question, will be rather limited, I think, in autumn 2020. Vicky, I'm just trying to adjust that screen, but failing. Okay. Well, I'll talk about economics. Um, I mean, one of the, the unintended consequences of Brexit is that evidence is just not listened to at all. Uh, but I'm delighted that we have a room full of people who are going to have to listen to it for the next few minutes. Uh, so bear with me. I think what's really interesting is that the markets who have been looking at all this, and we've just been hearing about the possibilities in the future and no deal still perhaps being uh, there on the table, they have decided that that's rubbish, that uh, in fact no deal has been off the table for quite some time and therefore sterling has recovered and there is some sort of confidence uh, in the market that we're going to be heading towards some sort of uh, orderly exit. Uh, what exactly it's going to look like, we don't know, and we don't actually know what it's going to be at the end. But for the moment, the financial markets anyway seem to be reasonably relaxed. And I, I have to admit, as an economist, of course, you, we, we normally put rational expectations in, in our assumptions, which we know is wrong, mostly, uh, but we still uh, assume that that's the case. And then, of course, the politicians come, and then you can throw rationality out of the window. But I have always assumed, nevertheless, that nobody who really wants to remain as Prime Minister for a period of time will want to preside over an economy where, if indeed we leave all the forecasts for no deal, which will be doing really badly for quite some time. Uh, I mean, that's not the basis on which you can build your support and perhaps you can be re-elected again. Maybe he would like Boris Johnson to be there forever. Uh, and, and that isn't going to be the way to achieve it. So I'm still... I never thought no deal was possible, and I still think, particularly given what we've just been hearing, that no deal is even less likely now. Once he gets there, he's going to have to do whatever he can to stay in power. Uh, and the truth is that, as we have shown already in our negotiations, we have very few cards. Remember, we wanted to have a, uh, the two things done together, our withdrawal agreement and the trade deal. Well, the Europeans said you can't do that. And in the end, we couldn't do that, and we haven't done that. And now we're therefore going to have to embark on this very long period where we're trying to do a deal. And we will be doing this from a position of weakness, and it's not just because we'll be a third country, but also because we're starting from a rather weak economy. And I think it is worth just thinking about that evidence now. Uh, all the estimates suggest that we have already lost something like 3% of GDP. In other words, since the referendum, we have grown 3% less than would otherwise be the case. That's about 60 billion. You could, use, you could have used it for all sorts of uh, different reasons. But what it has also done, it has taken away a huge amount of business confidence. And business investment last year declined every quarter. It picked up a little bit at the beginning of this year because we thought there would be a no deal and therefore everyone was stockpiling, building up their, their production, do uh, you know, preparations for that. And then, of course, it's all been slowing down since. And with it, productivity has suffered very significantly. Everyone is talking about how high employment is, but in reality, the high employment we've seen has been the reverse of uh, investment not taking place. So firms don't know what's going to happen. If we've just been hearing what... Uh, previous two speakers have been saying, everything is up in the air in terms of where we'll be at the end of the day, what type of an FTA or whatever it is we're going to have uh, is going to mean for businesses. So they have been very reluctant to invest. A number of them have already said they're moving production away. Supply chains have been changed. But what they've been doing is there's still demand. There has been demand for a while. They've been meeting that by just hiring more people. 
And with it, unfortunately, because output hasn't been rising anything like as fast as employment has, uh, productivity has come down uh, very significantly. In fact, in the last quarter, it fell at the fastest rate for five years. It started, of course, going really negative uh, with the financial crisis. So we have opened a gap between us and our competitors, which is now even bigger than it was before the financial crisis, because in a number of other countries, productivity has recovered a little bit, certainly faster than has been the case here. And what is more, at the time of 20, the 2016 referendum, and I remember we were all here, and I was on the platform with a number of these people there, uh, when the Sunderland results came out and, and, and the pounds that went zoop like that uh, behind us on this great screen. Um, of course, what you had at the time was quite a booming trade environment in the world economy. Uh, it took some time to get there, but after a, a period when trade fell because of the financial crisis and we just didn't know what, what was going to happen next, and trade is so important for world, for world uh, growth, GDP growth, in 2016, 2017, suddenly uh, trade started rising at the same rate, growing, going up for both the developed and the developing world, which was a brilliant environment in which, particularly if your pound has collapsed, uh, you can sell your goods um, uh, more easily. It didn't last terribly long, I have to say, in terms of the advantage of the pound, but nevertheless, we didn't do too badly. But the most important thing that happened, and we're not in that position right now, is that the Bank of England was the one institution that stepped in to stabilize the economy. Again, I remember that night, and also remember the following morning. I'm sure a number of you, too. Uh, you switch the radio on, all the politicians had panicked. They didn't expect the result, they didn't know what to do. And we had Mark Carney on the radio in the Today program. And you probably remember, I was a civil servant for a while, and we always used to laugh about a particular mug that, that exists, which isn't don't panic, blah, blah, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, hide your head and carry on. Um, it was, it's a mug that has, for some reason, a woman dressed in a suit just pretending that we have gender equality here, uh, and uh, on this mic, and the, the caption with a briefcase, and the caption says, I'm a civil, uh, trust me, I'm a civil servant and I'm here to help, uh, is what it said. So we all had it on our tables, um, but uh, sort of hoping. Uh, but it was actually not exactly a civil servant, but a public servant uh, who came on the radio and did a number of things. And it is worth remembering the scale of what he did. Not only did he cut interest rates very quickly, and he announced he was going to do that practically uh, the day after the referendum. He announced starting again quantitative easing, which was about 60 billion. He also bought uh, shares, uh, corporate bonds as well in the market, rather than shares, uh, of companies. Um, and then, of course, he announced two other very important things which are forgotten. Uh, first of all, he announced that there would be an introduction of long-term ter uh, lending, long-term, by which I mean over a year, imitating what was going on with Draghi in the European Central Bank, the head of the European Central Bank, um, which actually amounted, by the time it stopped in 2018, to about £160 billion just put into the economy as very cheap uh, loans to firms and individuals kept lots of firms going. That we economists, a number of us, are saying, "Oh God, zombie firms kept going." But thank God they did, because of course they were able to keep the people and employ more. So it finished in, in uh, February 2018. What, of course, that did, just as an aside, it added all that money to our debt, to the to the nation's debt, because you never knew whether it was going to be repaid. Uh, so that is now slowly being repaid. 
uh, and the debt is going down right at the top there, but in reality it's very risky and it wasn't just added to the bank's balance sheet, but it was basically a, a government guarantee that took place. In addition, he announced, and I'm quite sure, certain that most listeners didn't quite understand what he was talking about, that he was going to take away the, the counter-cyclical buffer requirement, capital requirement, that banks had to raise capital the following year, 2017, uh, because that's what you now do after the financial crisis, just to be on the safe side. Uh, when things go well, you raise more capital just to, to have it for the bad days. Well, he withdrew that requirement, which, which allowed the next 150 billion of lending to take place. The government on the other side, on the fiscal front, continued with its tightness, cuts in or freezes in public sector pay, welfare spending, and so on. So that was actually quite significant, and it kept the economy going. Now, you can say that until you're blue in the face about this is why we're doing reasonably well, but uh, that stopped, so what's going to happen next? And the uncertainty that's still there for businesses, you, you can just see it in confidence. So both consumer, strangely, despite high employment, and business confidence is at a 10-year low right now, according to some measurements. And we had ourselves a contraction in GDP in the second quarter of this year. Admittedly, so did Germany. But what it demonstrates as well is not only business confidence in there, investment isn't there, but also the trade environment that I mentioned before has gone completely the other way. So trade is growing very slowly. It's growing by something like 1.4%, 1.2% the latest uh, estimates of the International Monetary Fund. Um, and so there isn't this, this, this growth that was there before. So Germany isn't buying our products as much as it did before. Uh, China isn't buying the German products, so we can't export to them. We then export to, to, to China and so on. And we have, of course, protectionism in the U.S. We have tariffs imposed on uh, EU goods. And now, of course, the latest scandal is that there's going to be tariffs imposed on Parmesan cheese by the US and they, the Italians are very angry about this and that of course stems from the decision that's been made about who's been subsidizing the aircraft manufacturer more which is Airbus or Boeing and we seem to have been found to be guilty. So fines are imposed on all sorts of things that we export. So it's not actually a particularly good environment. We also of course have already had extra tariffs on uh, aluminium and steel imposed by the US and the environment is getting more difficult. So. So basically looking ahead, uh, the no deal scenario everyone thinks is actually going to be very, very bad economically, uh, and I said perhaps it won't happen, but still economists put all that out and they get attacked for being pessimistic. Uh, but even if we have the, the latest withdrawal agreement, uh, growth forecast by the National Institute uh, is, is, uh, doesn't look particularly good. It suggests that actually we're going to be growing a lot less slowly than we would have done, strangely, under the May deal as well. Um, and again, in 15 years' time, we'll be 3% plus uh, worse off in the state of affairs. Of course, businesses have absolutely no idea what type of FTA we're going to have. This, uh, the financial sector isn't covered usually in, F in, in free trade agreements at all, and the question is whether we will. But I have to say, I want to leave this on an optimistic note, uh, if possible. Because actually economists are optimists, so you may not believe that, but we are optimists. If you look at any forecast that we make, if we don't achieve it on year one, we say, oh, well, it was special circumstances. It will happen next year. Uh, and of course it doesn't. Uh, not very often. And once in a lifetime it does, and then you think that that's proof, proof of, of it really happening. But my optimistic note is as follows. We have no levers. 
to negotiate anything that the Europeans aren't going to like. So I am hopeful that at the end of the day, for economic reasons, and because, of course, assuming uh, uh, Boris Johnson gets a majority and he's proves to be as flexible as Evan was saying, um, we will have the sort of deal that keeps us seriously close to the EU, but somehow or other he's going to convince the electorate that that's not what he's done. So thank you. <laughs> Tony. Okay, well, um, I just want to bring you the uh, fourth and final contribution to this evening's um, series of um, presentations, which are, I think, constructively pessimistic, is the way I'd see them, really. Um, <laughs> you know, lots of interesting thoughts, lots of interesting ideas, ways forward. Just heard one there from Vicky. But against a, an all-too-realistic backdrop. And what I want to do is to talk about the British the Brexit process and UK government and politics. And what I'm going to do is going to sound a bit like a list of things, partly because they are issues that have been raised by the last three and a half years, mostly in the last year, actually, which I think will have a longer-term impact on the institutions of government and politics and which it's very hard to predict yet, particularly as we're just going into a general election, and some of what happens next in these terms will be determined by, for example, whether or not a majority government takes, play, takes uh, office, and then how big its majority is and how radical it wants to be. So broadly, I want to talk about the Constitution, I want to talk about par Parliament and political parties, I want to talk about uh, the executive, cabinet and government, and then broadly, very quickly, the future of the political economy in the UK. So just take the first of those, the Constitution. Clearly we've seen, uh, particularly in the recent weeks, but it, it, it had been bubbling up for some time, an extraordinary struggle between Parliament and government, Parliament and the executive. Something, you know, uh, there have been many allusions to the Civil War in the uh, 17th century. It is a remarkable period, and if you listen to some of the, what's been said in debates in Parliament by members of the government about Parliament, I think it is a, uh, it's put a great deal of pressure on what are key institutions inside what we've all thought of as the UK political, the makeup of the British political system. The courts have been brought into this, the Supreme Court and actually lower courts have uh, arrived, have had to make judgments that have made them arbiters in the system, leading to enormous pressure on the courts as well, particularly in the High Court judgment, uh, the initial one about whether the Article 50 process should be uh, voted on in Parliament or not, if you remember the headlines that fell out of that. We've had debates about the use of prerogative powers by the government. These are powers inherited from the Crown that have been used very freely by the government. Massive impact on the civil service. The UK civil service famed around the world for its impartiality and its willingness to work with governments as they change by not being given a lead by governments that didn't really know what they wanted, the civil services in some cases had to act as a lightning conductor for criticisms that ought to have fallen, in my view, more directly uh, on um, the government itself. And in the longer term, there will be impacts, and Vernon Bognor's written about this, on human rights and the legislation affecting human rights in the United Kingdom as uh, the underpinning implied human rights protections that the EU has offered by a kind of implied constitution 
drop out of the British uh, political system. Some academics think, well, this will lead to a written constitution, won't it? Well, it won't. Uh, academics like this stuff, but the truth is, I'm not sure this is going to lead to a written constitution. But I do think that the authority and the power of the government that next takes office, particularly if it's a majority government with a significant majority, will have a, it could have significant freedom to act in a number of the matters I've already mentioned and others besides. So that's very brief, touching, briefly looking at the Constitution. As far as Parliament and political parties are concerned, personally, I think Parliament has done a relatively good job at trying to work out what Brexit meant. Given that the original vote was a choice between staying as we are and something that needs to be worked out in future, I think a lot of the criticism that's been levelled at Parliament is because it has been trying to work out, and in some ways representing what we as people want, which is a whole range of different things, an infinite number of different things, but in the end, in doing so, has looked as if it's frustrating uh, government, and in doing that has created this people versus, rather dangerous in my view, people versus parliament potential narrative. Of course, for those of you who, who studied British government and politics, the very notion of representative democracy, not unique to the United Kingdom, has been under pressure. The idea we elect members of Parliament who, once in Parliament, then make decisions on our behalf, on the basis of a range of um, influences, but then in the end do make the decision themselves, has been replaced by a kind of, this is, you know, MPs are delegates of the uh, referendum a view that you often hear on the left and have long heard on the left, now visible on the centre-right besides. And, of course, elsewhere in Parliament, the role of the Speaker, I'm not going to talk about that this evening or this particular day, but the role of the Speaker and, indeed, even the monarch have been uh, brought into uh, question. As far as the political parties are concerned looking ahead, I mean, as John Curtis, the excellent and Britain's leading syphologist, has said, you know, Parties as old as the Conservative and Labour Party, with their long-established identities, have been, within a very short time, two or three years, people now identify more with Leave and Remain than they do with Conservative and Labour. Think about that for a radical and rapid change. Um, the Conservative Party, I think, going into this election, I'm going to go too much into the election, though Ivan has taken us there partly, and I would like to come back to one thing he said at the end. Um, the Conservative Party, if you look at the front bench of the Conservative Party in Parliament, it's a mixture of people who are very pro-free trade and believe the British economy should be changed quite radically to deregulate it, and yet they're about to fight a general election which is trying to win voters in the Midlands and the North who want security, more public spending, more welfare spending and protection from the rigours of the global economy. Now that's going to have to play itself out inside the Conservative Party. The Labour Party, well, you know, what to say about the Labour Party? In the middle of a messy compromise on Brexit, but not only that, really complicated position for them. And the Liberal Democrats, you know, with their very clear remain policy in this general election, but still risking, as they always do, coming second in lots and lots of places and actually affecting the result, not by the seats they win, but the seat, but what they do to the Conservative and Labour vote everywhere. Now, third, I mentioned the executive. Clearly, the cabinet, the government, prime minister, 
Theresa May and Boris Johnson have been involved in a titanic, some would say unseemly, struggle with the legislature, with Parliament. Clearly, many people in the current Cabinet would like to strengthen the role of the Cabinet as a result of all of this. And you know, Catherine talked about the Henry VIII powers embedded uh, in the withdrawal uh, bill, the next withdrawal bill. The truth is, in order to have maximum power in driving those through a big majority and with changes to the balance of power between Parliament and uh, government, Parliament and the executive, would profoundly assist a government doing that, but it would represent quite a significant change in the constitutional balance within the United Kingdom. There are profound longer-term implications if a government tries to effectively reduce the role of Parliament, which I think it might wish to. And then last but not least, there is the future political economy, really, in the UK. So we've already heard uh, from Vicky, I think, about get, getting Brexit done, the idea that this general election, when it's over, there's a result, and that's it. Sorted. Well, of course, it's not true, is it? It's just the beginning. It is the beginning of the end of the beginning of a process. <laughs> Years of unravelling whole question of trade deals, every one of which will feed back into the UK economy in a way that profoundly affects the economies of somewhere. The, Wolverhampton, you know, the, the economy of Wolverhampton to choose somewhere at random will be affected by trade deals that talk about, civil, about uh, aviation and civil aviation and construction of aeroplanes. The UK's international relations will have to be reconstructed. The Foreign Office has you know, had to bite... Uh, quite, it's, you know, sort of keep quiet, I'm suspecting, through quite a lot of what's gone on in recent uh, last three or four years. We'll have to reconstruct our international relations. And beyond that, in domestic policy, there's a whole raft of things that are not being done because Brexit is taking so much effort out of the entire political system, day and night. Tens of thousands, over, certainly over 10,000 civil servants working on Brexit, but no time to discuss all the other things government might reasonably be doing. Then finally, the general election. In a, well, first thing to say is the general election won't sort it out. Just get that out of the way. Um, I think it's going to be a big test of the major political parties, not just now, but what, they, what happens next to each of them. You know, if Boris Johnson doesn't get a majority in this election, very bad for him. If Jeremy Corbyn were to lose badly, very bad for him. You can see a, a scenario in which all three major parties in England, in, in Great Britain, do badly, actually. It's not difficult to see one where the Conservatives don't do particularly well, Labour loses again, and the Liberal Democrats don't do as well as they're hoping to. So, you know, it's not a prediction, which as I can see it might happen. The election will be partly about Brexit, but partly about many, many other things. But what intrigues me, it will be about the health service and education and defence. I doubt, interestingly, although it will be about leave versus remain, it will not be about trade deals, and it will not be about migration policy, which are going to be issues immediately then after this election that have to be discussed, which have been left on the back burner so, now, so far. So I think any new parliament, just like this one, faces the challenge of working out, yet again, what Brexit is to be. Mm. A final thought on Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister, and it's just something Ivan said that made me think about this. When Boris Johnson was Mayor of London, I spent a lot of time watching him politically, his political career, and I think it's fair to say, you know, he didn't go into politics to 
be you know, policy active. It was more a matter of being ambitious and getting to the top. Nothing wrong with ambition. But as mayor, the most intriguing thing about him is more than any politician I've ever watched, his mistakes were seen as evidence of authenticity. And there are very few politicians for whom that is true. And it does give him a capacity of, to operate and a malleability in terms of policy, which few politicians can match. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Okay, I think in the interest of time, I'm going to open it up straight away to you, the audience, and invite uh, questions. If you could, uh, perhaps we could take questions in groups of three, if that's acceptable uh, to the panel. I'm also going to say that um, the questions don't need to be answered by each of you for every single question. Let's do it by specialisation. Could we take the lady here in the pink, uh, please? Can you just wait for the microphone, please? Could you just say who you are and the question, please? Hi, um, my name's Alex, I work in Parliament. Um, question really for Catherine. Um, nobody on the, their presentations really mentioned the possibility of a second referendum, which is probably going to be quite a big issue on the campaign circuit over the next few weeks. What would that do in terms of making the timetable that you talked about in any way achievable? Thank you. Other questions? Can we take the, um, our friend here, please? Can you wait for the microphone? Um, you, said, um, you said earlier that um, a general election would solve um, nothing. Um, so do you think that uh, putting another vote, a confirmatory vote, to the people would help to solve the political impasse that we've reached? Thank you. An emerging career uh, before our eyes. Uh, I'm sorry, there's so many of you. Let's uh, take the gentleman here in the black, please. We're going to continue later. Um, it's often, sorry, Richard Turner, King's College. It's often said that we're on the edge of a new um, industrial revolution, driverless cars. How much will the uncertainty over trade deals distract and, 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 and create uncertainty so that mean we, won't, we really won't be able, R&D departments won't be able to confidently capitalise on Britain's contribution to that? Okay, perhaps we could pause there. Can I ask... Uh, Vicky, to respond to this point about um, driverless cars going to a cliff edge and Brexit, I suppose, is the, uh, is the point. That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a problem, and I think uh, car companies have already voted with their money, if you want to call that. They're basically, they're moving quite a lot of production elsewhere or back to their home countries, wherever they came from, like the Japanese. Uh, and we've already had uh, a couple of instances where... Uh, intentions of building electric cars or, or, and also batteries and so on, which is very important, uh, in the UK uh, or having special centres that look at the engines and how they would work uh, have been pulled. Uh, and the longer the uncertainty remains, I think the more likely it is that we will probably lose out on this. And we haven't been investing, we haven't been innovating anything like as much as we should be doing. So uh, I worry about this and the long-term growth of the UK economy will, will suffer. Okay. Tony, do you want to respond on the referendum? There are two questions on the referendum. Yes, I mean, it, I, I just think the general, the general election might solve other things, but it probably, it, I just don't see it sorting out the endless Brexit tangle that by implication of, of directly we're discussing. 
I think the challenge about, and to both that question and the other questioner, the challenge with a confirmatory vote is that I think privately, many MPs, whether they are pro-leave or pro-remain, don't really want another referendum. I think they fear the poison, that it, the further poison that it would deliver into the system, which is not quite an answer to the questions, which is, could it sort it out or would it sort it out? Well, it might. If, if we're agreed on the panel that, that you know, another parliament, and I completely agree, I didn't say this, I'm, I can see more than one general election in the, inter, you know, in the next year or two, I'm afraid. You know, I can see that happening. And there are circumstances in which offering the public a choice between sort of a deal, no deal, and uh, remain might be an option for Parliament, and there would be a parliamentary configuration that would offer that, and it will be therefore an element. I take the point, the first question, this point. It is an implied element. I think the reason I didn't mention it, and others may not can explain why they didn't, is that I personally don't think it's very likely but that's just my own possibly wrong view. Okay, Catherine Iden. Yes, I would just like to say something about the timetable to answer your question. Um, so if there were to be a second referendum or a confirmatory vote, it would take about six months. Um, and remember, it would need a bill to go through Parliament, and the bill would also need to have a, uh, the question in it. And the question, would it be a two-pronged question or a three-pronged question, so binary leave remain, or a three-pronged question, as Tony's talked about? That question will need to be checked by the Electoral Commission. The minimum period it can take is probably 22 weeks, possibly 26 weeks. So therefore, there would need to be a further request for an extension. And the EU may give that because it's always been pretty clear that they would give an extension where it's to deliver some sort of democratic moment. The question is, let's imagine all of that, was, that could happen. It goes back to the question here, will it make a difference? Well, the answer is it's not clear because actually the, all the polling shows the country is split down the middle. It's 52-48 one way or the other. And leaving aside how poisonous, I do agree with Tony that a second referendum might be, the reality is even if it went the other way and, there was a, uh, and the Remain side won 52-48, then you have those who feel that they, have been, they lost would say, right, best of three. And so the risk is it doesn't resolve the problem. Ivan. Well, I agree with that. Nothing really, uh, nothing really to add on that. I think in terms of the European reaction, let's say we have a, a minority government and a, and a coalition government or some sort of gov a minority government led by Jeremy Corbyn who seeks a renegotiation. In practice, although there's no enthusiasm whatever in European capitals or in Brussels for this, they would renegotiate as they have with Boris Johnson. So I wouldn't listen to too much of the brave talk that there would be no negotiation. But I think they take a pretty hard uh, line. Uh, I think a permanent customs union kind of arrangement, if that's what he wants, would be on the table. No reason, because it was basically on the table for Theresa May. I think the appetite in European capitals and in Brussels to permit a, a referendum after that where the Prime Minister, having negotiated it, sits on the fence as to whether he wants that or remain... Um, I won't tell you how caustic the reactions I get uh, uh, from European capitals and from Brussels are on that. So I think a Corbyn-led government would come under immediate pressure to say, if you're serious about this and want any negotiation which changes the withdrawal agreement, the political declaration, you have to commit that this is the deal that you're going to advocate. 
Mm. You're not going to sit on the fence and say, well, it's now up to the British people whether you want to remain on existing terms or have that deal. And they may say, may say that existing terms no longer exist. Adam, you mentioned that a customs union would be immediately acceptable or uh, <coughs> accepted by the EU27. Presumably, a Norway-type deal, a Switzerland deal, would also be uh, immediately acceptable to the EU27. Not Switzerland, because uh, they've made that mistake um, over 20, 25 years, and they deeply regret it, and the yep. institutional dynamics of the Swiss agreement are impossible for the EU, and they won't go there with the British. Norway would be, but let's face it, it isn't going to happen. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I won't go into the details of why the Norwegian model doesn't work okay. in the UK, but I don't think we will ever ask for it, and there's no expectation on the European side that an EEA-type model could work for Britain. So uh, I, I have always discounted this idea that we would end up in an EEA-type model. You could obviously have variants of it which were markedly different from Norway, but in particular for the financial services sector, for the Bank of England and for the Treasury, it's utterly unacceptable to uh, end up in a Norwegian-type model. And you can do that in a small, undiversified economy with a large sovereign wealth fund. You can't do that in a large, diversified economy uh, with financial services so important to our economy. Okay. Except if you're Very in briefly. the EEA, then you have mutual recognition. It's the only, the only chance you have yep. as a third country to do that. So the financial services would actually be reasonably happy because they won't have to go through equivalence. And nothing on the referendum question. It really depends what happens to, to uh, the election result, of course. Uh, but I think the Europeans would love it because it is another proof that actually the EU works and we still haven't managed to get out of it. And, and the population was thinking again. And, and so I don't see why they would have any hesitation in granting an extension. Okay. Other questions? There's a gentleman right in the very middle here. I'm sorry, making you walk. And then if we can take the lady on the far right. There's some people in the back. Thank you. One of the issues that, that none of the panelists you, you talked about but interested in your view in is perhaps the legitimacy and the longevity of the United Kingdom in the form that it is. Do you think in the fullness of time when we analyze the impacts of Brexit, that is where the deepest cut may lie. Thank you. Yes, I have a question for Catherine, um, perhaps a technical question. I'm here. <laughs> um, given that, the, that, that trade is an external competence of the EU and currently the UK is engaging in trade negotiations and, and rolling over trade like treaties, do you think that this forms a, like formally um, constitutes a violation of EU law? And if so, do you think that, there, uh, that the EU might have some willingness to start an infringement procedure? Intriguing. Can I, can I just check? You, were you asking? Sorry, I, I missed the very fast first part of your question. Were you asking about um, whether the agreement, the withdrawal agreement, is ultra virus? No, no, no. So besides the whole Brexit, whatever is happening, Brexit. Head of our leader, yeah. I think it's our negotiations about trade are in advance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. The trade negotiations, the rolling over treaties. Okay. Let's take a couple of more questions. The gentleman here, please. Yes, uh, hello. <laughs> I'm from uh, Norway, as uh, was mentioned. <laughs> and um, I'm here for uh, a week to try to figure out what, you know, what's going on, which is... 
You're right to assume it will take no more than seven days. You need decades. As mentioned, we have uh, we are not in the EU, but we are within the uh, European Economic Area. Uh, when uh, this deal was uh, originally made in the 90s, it was uh, presented uh, very much as a trade deal, with a few exceptions on, uh, for example, fishing, farming, the monetary union, and so on. Um, I'm going to push you for the question, please. Okay. Yes. Okay. Over time, it's become more intrusive, and uh, some. Many people feel that uh, the one-size-fits-all model doesn't really work so well. For example, the new minimum wage might, in the worst-case scenario, topple the Nordic model. Uh, my question is, uh, do you think that the European Union would have uh, been less controversial if it was not quite as intrusive into non-trade uh, areas. Okay, good, thanks. Uh, with the panel's approval, can we just take two last questions yeah. and this is going to be the final round. Can we take the gentleman right at the very back and then could we take the gentleman right at the very back here as well, please? Hello, this is a question for Sir, Sir Ivan. I'm Kevin from uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, just it's somewhat counterintuitive, but to what extent do you think Brexit has been a success somewhat in now building um, one of the biggest and most vociferous pro-European movements perhaps now seen in the continent? <laughs> and also helping to build and create a sense of European demos now in the UK, some, which is somewhat uh, a nirvana for a lot of European policymakers. Okay, many thanks. And then okay. gentlemen here, please. Um, Charlie Williams, let's imagine in a totally high hypothetical situation Labour win by miles and they have a referendum and leave win by miles how open and how legal would it be for Corbyn to completely redo everything and, and do that all over again <laughs> Many thanks. We're finishing on uh, a number of ifs uh, there. Uh, can we just go in reverse order and answer the questions that you wish to pick up on, Ivan? Well, I mean, the Scotland question, uh, and indeed, indeed the Northern Ireland question, the break-up question is, yes, the dog that hasn't so far barked in this, uh, this conversation. I think it is critical. I think it will be a very big issue in the next Parliament, regardless of what happens in the election. Um, if we ended up with a minority government but requiring the support of the SNP, um, who may well get 40 to 50 seats and may well sweep the board in Scotland, uh, they will try and name their price. And I would have thought a minority Corbyn government will in the end meet their price, and there will therefore be another independence referendum in the next parliament. That's a prediction uh, on, based on very little, but I think that would happen. Um, it would be conflictual with a majority Conservative government, and, of course, it will have many characteristics of the current debate or the current negotiation between the EU and the UK in reverse. You could argue that the case, the economic case for Scottish independence is actually uh, weaker or weakened by Brexit. But that won't be the dynamics. The political dynamics may propel the SNP over the line and may propel independence over the line because, rather similarly to the 2016 referendum, it will be on values and identity and control 
and where do we stand in the world that Nicola Sturgeon would uh, run an independence referendum. And the dynamics in terms of dealing with Brussels and other European capitals are not remotely as they were in 2014 when, frankly, the European Union was quite keen on this issue going away, whereas the sympathy, I think, for a Scottish population, and obviously this is uh, propagated around the European Union uh, by the Scottish Government for a public which is basically saying 70 to 75% of the Scottish public wanted to remain in the European Union and have been taken out against their will. Uh, So the attitude of the European authorities... Uh, and in many capitals will be very different to a Scottish independence campaign and a campaign for expedited accession under Article 49. I think there are huge issues about Scottish accession above all the monetary union uh, question and above all the hard border across this island question, given that Scottish exports go preponderantly to the UK market, not to the EU market. So I don't want to minimise the problems here, But I think the issue is coming big time, Um, and if there's a majority Conservative government and an SNP landslide, which is one possible outcome in six weeks' time, we will have a crisis very, very rapidly on our hands between England and Scotland. Thank you. Catherine. Um, I agree with that. I would just add two other things. I also think... um, uh, Leo Varadka said last week um, he expected a united Ireland in his lifetime, and given he's only 40-odd, we're talking, you know, 40 years, and I think there is a good chance of that. I would say I am dismayed at the UK or the Western government's cavalier disregard of Scotland and Wales in particular in throughout um, the recent process. You'll note that when the WAB was um, laid before Parliament, the Withdrawal Implementation Bill, at no stage in the three days was provision made for the Scottish or Welsh um, uh, administrations to have a look at it. Um, They wouldn't have liked what they saw, but nevertheless they should have at least been asked. Um, On your point about um, trade negotiations ahead of us leaving, um, in in respect to the rollover agreements, it was fully anticipated that this would happen, but where I think there actually is a potential legal problem is that Article 50 is all about the divorce, and yet the Northern Ireland Protocol is entirely about the future relationship. So there is a virus issue, a powers issue, whether actually the Northern Ireland Protocol should have ever been adopted under um, Article 50. It is about the future relationship and probably should have been done under 207-217. Will anything be done about it? Probably not. But you can, you wouldn't be surprised if someone who wants to raise some issues and who has been frustrated on the political domain might try and throw in a legal challenge because as we've seen, the courts, as Tony said, have been rolled, have been brought into all of these issues that previously courts have been trying to avoid having to deal with. Tony. Well, if I can just, uh, just touch on this um, constitutional issue, I mean, one of the many things that we haven't had time, I mean, not only tonight, it's my fault, but since 2016 to think seriously about enough is how far you know the 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 brexit vote included tangled up in it a sort of english national vote sort of not i don't mean hard nationalism but the fact is that there's no question that if you know wales or scotland or particularly i should say particularly scotland or northern ireland had the levels of public spending per head that england does or some parts of england do they consider it very bad indeed. And England within the UK, partly because it's so big and dominant, 
doesn't, its MPs don't exert themselves as England. So there is a, an English issue which somewhere needs to be addressed. But of course, that's linked to the fact that I think, and I completely agree with my colleagues, if the Scots and all the Northern Irish eventually vote to leave, one thing that most people in England would do would just be to say, well, fine. There's no, there's no particular desire to keep the United Kingdom together other than from some politicians in frontline politics. So I think there's a whole range of things. It's a good question to be disentangled here. On the linked source of question about you know, is Brexit a success in generating European movement, all I'd say is I'm sure there is a stronger European movement than ever before, but I don't yet detect it looking much, much like a majority. That's okay, well, I, I, I would, though, um, that was a very... Uh, pregnant deep, pause, indeed. Pregnant Sorry about pause. that. <laughs> uh, but if you look at the Eurobarometer, if you look at evidence, mm. um, certainly uh, it's the, the acceptance of the EU, thinking that it's been good for them, with some exceptions, you know, Italy and Greece, um, uh, and the UK, of course, because it's still in there. Uh, it's at, uh, at record levels. And also the, the acceptance of the euro is at record oh, levels. Inside the rest of the EU, yes. Yes, I, yes, oh, yes. sorry. You the no, I was only asking for the UK. I was only answering ah, for the UK. Right. This is a broader answer. Okay. Um, well, in, in the, the question about intrusiveness, and, and uh, is, is it sort of terrible? Uh, well, first of all, the UK has had lots of opt-outs, but in, in addition, quite a lot of the standards that are out there, uh, we develop them, in fact, and that's forgotten. Uh, so we've been very instrumental in doing that. We're very proud of the fact that a lot of the standards, including behaviours, businesses, you know, company, organisational stuff, and, and of course treatment of, of, of people, um, uh, we're very proud to have exported that to the EU and then to the rest of the world. So, so uh, we have to just be a little bit, little bit careful when we think about intrusiveness. But in terms of the question of, of what can be done, um, what you know, if. Um, Corbyn decides to just ignore whatever referendum there might be. Well, uh, he's, of course, on the left, and uh, I can only bring my Greek experience to bear, uh, which is that, you know, Tsipras, very left-wing um, um, prime minister, called a referendum uh, which said no to the austerity measures of the EU, um, and then he just ignored it. So, so in fact... Uh, I remember doing, doing a TV interview where the, the Greeks had told me to just go and tell the, uh, the Brits to, to bend it like Beckham. So, <laughs> so just, and, and I stupidly said that in a CNN interview, and they sort of went, what? Um, so, so you could, uh, if we indeed we do believe that uh, Boris Johnson is quite flexible in that, uh, he can sort of ignore whatever else it is. But I think uh, uh, Corbyn um, uh, may well eventually have to do the same, but I think it's just a huge if that uh, you know your two assumptions were quite uh, quite staggering. So let's see, let's see, let's see what actually happens. And and, and just just to, to one small point about where we've ended up on the political thing. I mean, it, uh, Brexit being a success, it has caused, it has created quite a lot of quite a lot of of, of sort of comedy shows, if you like. Uh, uh, and, and quite a lot of people have been enjoying sort of uh, making things up um, and, and taking from it. And, and I, I live in Lambeth, and Brixton is part of, of, of that. And if you drive through Brixton, there are great big banners which are you know, encouraging you to be in Brixton, like they encourage you to be in Wandsworth and what have you. Uh, and they are extraordinary. So, so I saw them again yesterday. So they say things like, 
strong and stable community. Remember that one from, from Theresa May, strong and stable community. Stay in our single market, which I think is quite interesting. And then the, 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 the killer, Brixton means Brixton. <laughs> Very good indeed. Okay, I think we are actually uh, out of time. I'm not sure that we've satisfied our Norwegian friends uh, seeking full uh, exploration, but I think we have uh, investigated, discussed a number of points in a very expert fashion. Can you thank our panel? Thank you.